Tonight we come to sermon number 16 in the series of messages on the subject of infant salvation. And the title of the message tonight is The Calvinistic Theory, and we relate it to this question, Are Infants Savable? Are Infants Savable? We will be examining in the next couple of messages the Calvinistic theory involving how are infants savable, and then the third one, are all infants which die in, infants, say, in infancy saved? So we'll be looking at that as the messages progress. Tonight, though, we want to look at the aspects as to the subjects viewed from the Calvinistic understanding of the Scriptures, are infants savable? Now, before we get into the new information at hand, it is important at this time that we give a review of the various systems of religion which profess to give an answer to the question of what happens to a baby which dies in infancy. We have now completed in our study thus far an examination of the seven leading systems of religious belief which apply their logic to the question of what happens to an infant which dies in infancy. I'll give those again in passing. The first system which we examined was known as the sinless view of infant salvation. This is the system of religious belief which is held by that which is known as the Pelagian system of religion. This view holds that infants are born innocent without original sin, and thus they could not be subject to condemnation and destruction. And so therefore they are savable because they are innocent. Now we have rejected that view because reason number one, it goes right into the face of what the Bible has to say about original sin and the nature of a child in which it is born. And secondly, it also would propose to save the infant on some other ground other than the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. If the, if the infant is innocent, then it does not need a Savior. And we believe that if anybody is going to be saved, they need a Savior, and that Savior is God's Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we reject or rejected the view of infant salvation known as the sinless theory. Then the second view which we examined was the incapable theory. This view goes a step further than the first one. This view holds that before anybody's destiny can be assigned, they first of all must be allowed to go through a period of probationary testing. And inasmuch as the baby died before it could enter its probationary period of testing, it died incapable of saving itself. So therefore, because it was incapable, it could not be condemned. Now we rejected that theory for two reasons also. Number one, and that being that human ability is not the measure of human responsibility. That is, that that a person may be unable to do something, but they are still held accountable by God for doing so. 
if I cut off my leg and then go down to the draft board and tell them I'm not able to join the service or I'm not able to fulfill my country's obligations to the draft, uh, they may say, you may not be able, but don't think you're not responsible. You did it. We're going to hold you accountable for what you did. Men are accountable for what they do, even though they may have lost their ability. The drunkard may have lost his ability to control his appetite, but if he goes out and injures someone, he's still responsible for his actions. Then the second reason we rejected this theory of incapability is that if the infant could not have a period to produce a holy character so that it could go to heaven, or rather uh, it could produce a holy character so that it would not go to hell, Neither did it have the opportunity to produce a holy character so it go to heaven. So therefore there would be no destiny for an infant under this view if it was based upon their capability. Then the third view that we looked at was known as the character of God theory, or the love of God. This view holds that all infants which die in infancy are saved because of the love of God that God is such a God of love that there could be no such thing as the condemnation of one of his creatures. Now, we rejected this view also because, first of all, the view of the love of God, that God is in essence love, is not the view which is presented in the Scripture. It's a misrepresentation of the character of God Almighty. God Almighty is primarily a holy God and his love is holy. But because his primary essence is holiness and not love, then he must be judged just when he deals with sin. And if the infant is born with a sinful nature, then the justice of God must act upon that nature. The second reason why we rejected the character of God's theory of infant salvation is that it overlooks the unlovely nature of the child's heart. It also holds that the child is innocent and thereby is lovable. But that is not the picture which the scriptures present to us of the child's nature. Then the fourth major view, which we have already examined, is the what is known as the children of God theory. This view holds that all men, by natural birth, are born into the family of God. That is, they are automatically children of God, and they have a right to call God their Father, the universal fatherhood of all men. We rejected this view because, first of all, its basic premise is incorrect. Men are not born into this life in the family of God. That is, they must undergo a second birth. They must be born again or be saved in order to be able to call God their Father. And Jesus dealt with this in his dealing with the Jews who felt that by race they had a natural insight or standing with God. And Jesus told them that by their race they were of their father, the devil. So it is not true that children are automatically born into the family of God, and therefore, if they are God's children, he could never condemn one of them. Then secondly, we reject this view because it would also then eliminate 
the child's salvation from having any relationship to the saving work of Christ. If the child is already in the family of God by his natural birth, then he doesn't need any redemptive work applied to him by the Lord Jesus Christ. So this view really, in essence, then, does not give a satisfactory understanding of infant salvation. Then the fifth major view is the view which is based upon a universal atonement of Christ. This is the what is known as the Arminian theory of infant salvation. This view holds that while the infant is born with a sinful nature, there is an unconditional, universal application of the blood of Christ to that infant's uh, life, but that this universal application only deals with pardoning the child's condemnation. It does not cleanse the child's nature, as the Arminian holds that no one can have their nature cleansed except they first give their consent by their own free will. So seeing as how, then, the child cannot give its consent, this view of infant salvation based upon a universal atonement puts the Arminian in a real dilemma which we rejected, and that being, first of all, that it provided no basis for cleansing the child's nature. The Arminian has a problem with where the child's going to go. According to the Arminian proposition, the blood has been unconditionally applied. It has removed the child from the wrath of God, so God can't send it to hell. But God cannot do anything with the infant's nature, which is sinful, until the infant gives its consent. So God can't take the baby to heaven, and he can't send because it would be unholy, and he can't ascend it to hell because it's already been pardoned. And so there's a real dilemma. There's no salvation for this infant. What would we do with the infant? And, we, and the Arminian left us with no answer. Then the sixth major view of infant salvation is based upon what is known as baptismal regeneration. That is the view held by the Church of Rome. And in this view, it, it holds that grace is conferred through baptism. Therefore, unless anybody is baptized by a representative of the Church of Rome, per se, then they have no access to the grace of God. Now, we rejected that view as false also in that it misrepresented the true plan of redemption, of grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then secondly, we rejected it because it explicitly provided for the condemnation of all infants who, who died in an unbaptized state. And so we rejected that view. Then the seventh view, which we have just completed, is known or was known as the after-death probationary view. This is the view which the consistent Arminian must be forced into. Since the child has an application of the blood, according to the Arminian view, at its birth, so that it is removed from the wrath of God and pardoned, but nothing can be done with its nature to cleanse it until the individual gives God the consent to do so. Then, this particular view says, the infant, then, if it dies, must be allowed to grow up in an after state, after death, in order to mature enough to be able to give God its consent to cleanse its nature, and at that time its destiny will then be settled. 
Now, we rejected that view also because, first of all, life is not probationary. Men enter into this life in a condemned state, already sinful, not going to determine whether they shall be sinful or not. And the wages of sin is already death. Then secondly, we rejected this view because the Bible definitely teaches clearly that there is no opportunity to have a nature changed after death. However death finds a person, that's what their destiny shall be throughout all eternity. And then thirdly, we rejected this view because this view surrenders the whole question of infant salvation. It, it is in this fashion. It says that an infant cannot be saved as an infant. It has to grow up into an adult. And then it has an opportunity to be saved. So it completely surrenders the question as to what happens to an infant which dies in infancy, in that it holds that an infant has to grow up in life after death between this life and the judgment, in which case it would no longer be an infant. Now, we have spent 15 messages trying to lay aside some of these major, seven major views of infant salvation. I'm glad tonight that after getting all of what I would kindly call to one of our people here, the garbage, out of the way, now we can begin to lay the foundation for really how God can save an infant. And tonight we propose to do so by examining the Calvinistic theory. And this is the only theory left. If this theory fails, all is lost. And we are left with two courses. Number one, if the Calvinistic theory does not give us a satisfactory answer as to what happens to an infant which dies in infancy, then we must be left to this course. A, we must believe that all infants dying in infancy are damned, or else we must somehow be, believe blindly, without any rational understanding at all, that they are somehow going to be saved, but we just can't explain how. Now, that's the only two alternatives that we've got left if this theory does not get the task accomplished. So let us then see tonight if the Calvinistic understanding of the Scriptures can construct the case in strict accordance with the gospel and fact in such a way as to place dead children, elected by the Father, redeemed by the blood, and sanctified by the Spirit, into the saving arms of the Lord Jesus Christ, wherein that they may in heaven be able to praise him throughout the eternal ages to come. Now, in order to do this, before we see how the Calvinistic theory is applied to infants, it is important that we understand what the Calvinistic theory is. If you go to the average man on the street, he will probably never even heard the word. But those that have heard it, 95 out of 100 can't explain what it means. For they've had it so butchered up and contorted to them that very few really understand what the Calvinistic approach to salvation really is. And if the word comes up in some circles, why, oh, you're one of those. You believe that God predestinated some babies to go to hell and predestinated some to go to heaven. You're one of that group. 
Well, you've got all types of straw men that are built up. So before we actually apply the Calvinistic theory of salvation to infants, then I think it is important in our study that we understand what the Calvinistic theory is as it relates to salvation in general. And it can be ascribed in three simple words. God saves sinners. God saves sinners. The one true God actually, effectually, saves. And he only saves one class of people, and that is sinners. So that we are not talking about God provides a way for a sinner to save himself. But we're talking about, from this theory and this viewpoint, it is the Almighty God who actually saves and is the cause of a person going to heaven. Now, in the understanding of the order of salvation as taken from the Calvinistic viewpoint, it involves a study of what is known as the decrees of God, that is, how God thought and planned the order of salvation. Turn with me for the basis for this approach to the Old Testament book of Isaiah, chapter 14. Isaiah, chapter 14. Since God, it is believed, is a God of wisdom and who does things decently and in what? Order. Then he never sets out upon a task but what he is fully aware of what the outcome is going to be. Now that is what we're dealing with, with the one true God of heaven and earth. Now in Isaiah chapter 14 and beginning in verse 24, I want us to see how that God formulates purposes before he actually begins to carry out those purposes. That is, he has some things on his mind which he originates there before he actually begins to bring them to pass. Isaiah chapter 14, verse 24. The Lord of hosts hath sworn, saying, Surely, as I have thought, past tense, so shall it come to pass, present and future tense. Do you want to know what God thought about before there was a world? Then you look out today and see what's coming to pass. What has come to pass today was originated in the mind of God before there was a world. As I have thought, so shall it come to pass. He formulates a purpose and then he executes that purpose. Verse 24, As I have purpose, so shall it stand. Verse 25, That I will break the Assyrian in my land, and upon the, my mountains tread him underfoot. Then shall his yoke depart from off them, and his burden depart from off their shoulders. This did not take place, according to history, until about three years later, before God dealt with the Assyrian nation. But he already had formulated his purpose of what he was going to do with them. And as he purposed, it came to pass in time. Look in verse 26. This is the purpose that is purposed upon the whole earth, and this is the hand that is stretched out upon all the nations. For the Lord of hosts hath purposed, and who shall disannul it? 
and his hand is stretched out, and who shall turn it back? Now there we see the groundwork or the basis for believing that the God who has created did so with wise purposes in mind, and that what he purposed in eternity past is but a reflection of what is coming to, to pass now in time and history. So since we believe that God saves sinners, there then must logically be an order of salvation. What did God first purpose to come to pass? Well, if you want to see that, then from the Calvinistic viewpoint, we merely observe what has come to pass. What was the first thing in the logical thought pattern of God that he purposed to bring to pass? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The first decreed purpose of God from the Calvinistic standpoint is known as the decree to create man. Then you go on over to Genesis chapter 3 and you see the second outworking of God's decreed purpose and that was he permitted man to fall into sin. So that before the foundation of the world then, what has now come to pass in time, God decreed that he would create a race of human beings and permit them to fall into sin. That's the order of salvation. Then the Calvinistic theory, thirdly, at this point, with man viewed as creatable, man viewed as fallen in his head Adam, God then decreed to elect a large portion of that race unto salvation and to leave the remaining portion of that race to the just deserts of their sins. That is, predestination follows the fall in the sense that God decreed to create, he decreed to allow man to fall, and then out of a fallen, ruined race, he predestinated. Now notice, predestination did not occur prior to the fall, but it follows the fall out of the fallen race of Adam. This is known in Calvinistic theory as the sublapsarian view of the decree. The superlapsarian view, which has been held by some in what is known as the hyper-Calvinist camp, uh, we will not deal with, for it is not a proper and pure reflection of what is known as Calvinism. But out of a fallen race, then, there is a decree, a decree to intervene and save some, and a decree to allow the rest to go to their own just desert. Now then, we have this known as the decree of election. Get your order. Creation in the mind of God. The fall of man in the mind of God, in his purpose. Then a decree to elect some unto salvation which did not deserve salvation. And then the fourth order in the order of salvation as held by the Calvinistic system is that God purposed to send a Redeemer to save those who were chosen in Christ. Now you say, Brother Jim, where do you get the order at here? Where does this order come from? Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 25 states, 
Christ loved the church and gave himself for it. The church is synonymous with the elect. There was an elect body in view of God's purpose prior to his purpose to send a redeemer so that Christ loved a particular people and gave himself for that people. So the church was chosen before the decree to redeem. It is not, you reverse those. Some reverse it, and they have a universal atonement, and then the decree to elect some to be made partakers of that atonement. Christ loved the church. Now get the order. A church was in prospect, then Christ gave himself for that church. So you have a particular design in mind. And then the fifth order in the Calvinistic theory is that God purposed to send his spirit to regenerate and give the merits of the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ to those individuals. And then the final is that God purposed to glorify those individuals in giving them a new resurrected body. Now, how many of you are glorified tonight? You got a new resurrected body? No, you don't. But you read Romans chapter 8, and it's, this, it's as if you already do. For whom he justified, them he also what? Glorified. Past tense. Now, why can that be spoken of that way? Because God is of one mind, and none can change him. He does not have to be bound by time so that everything is before him at all times. So that what the final outcome shall be in heaven will be but a outworking of what was on his mind before there was ever a star placed in the heavens. So this is what we call the order of salvation as understood by the Calvinistic system. Now, interpreting this order, it means then this, that the Calvinistic understanding of Scripture teaches that God, first of all, created the world, man and all things, as they were in time brought into being. Next, that he permitted, while having the power to prevent, the first members of the race, that is, the representative head, Adam and Eve, to eat the forbidden fruit and fall into sin just as the scriptures historically recite the story, and that all mankind descended from Adam and Eve by natural birth, sinned in Adam, and fell with him in that first transgression, so that God could, in his purpose, view them as created and fallen. Then... He predestinated out of a fallen, corrupt, depraved race some to everlasting life. But for reasons known only to himself and to no one else, he passed by or federated, passed over the remaining portion of that race. And so did not include every member 
of Adam's race in the redemptive plan, so that then in the fullness of time he sent forth his son made of a woman made under the law to make an efficacious atonement for those upon whom he had set his love, that they might be delivered from their guilt and restored to his bosom, and then that he finally sent forth his spirit to apply to every one of those redeemed by Christ, nominated by his decree, the benefits of the atonement purchased by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now this is the approach to salvation, the order which the Calvinistic position holds to. The Calvinist holds that the purpose of God is as wide at one end as it is at the other end. What do you mean by that, Brother Gables? That is, that we believe that the purpose of God in eternity past is as wide there as it is in the consummation in heaven. Again, what are we talking about? The Arminians uh, are prone and enjoy presenting the picture of salvation in the form of a cone. How many of you have seen what a cone is like? Remember the old-fashioned ice cream cones? Big at the top, narrow at the bottom. Got the picture? The Arminian concept of salvation is this. God has a great big heart back here before the foundation of the world in which the, his desire is to see every member of Adam's race saved. But then when you come out here into heaven after the judgment, you've got a, a narrow view in which you connect those two together and you have the figure of a cone. What God purposed and desired here did not somehow come to pass. Somehow, many of those people who were supposed to have been included in God's plan of redemption do not make it. So they have a small end out here in heaven, a big end back here in eternity uh, past. But the Calvinist holds to no such position. He holds that the tube is the same back here before the foundation of the world as it's going to be out here in heaven. That is, if you want to see that multitude in the book of Revelation, out of which no man can number, out of every kindred, tribe, and nation, if you want to count that number, that people, and it's the same people for whom the Lord Jesus Christ died 2,000 years ago upon the cross of, of Calvary. The Father who chose, and the Son who redeemed, and the Spirit who regenerates, are all in agreement as to who the objects of salvation are going to be. So the Calvinist then, with his logic, holds that whatever comes to pass in time is but an outworking of the purpose of God in eternity past. They rejoice to think that none of God's loved ones are lost. Do you rejoice in that tonight? that every child whom the Father has set his heart upon shall be in heaven. That's a comforting thought. And if you don't agree with that, then you think about what the alternative is. And I haven't time to deal with that this evening, but it's not very, uh, very comforting. The Calvinist rejoices to announce that there are no failures in God's redemptive plan, that he undertook the salvation of no person, and then fail to make good his effort. 
that God is a being who never breaks down, who never blunders, who never, because of weak incompetence, fails to fulfill what his purpose is. And therefore, the Calvinist rejoicingly announces that God shall bring to glory every person upon whom he has set his affection, that he is not a being of afterthoughts, perpetually readjusting his plans and shifting his approaches to fit emergencies and circumstances, but that with God, all before him consists of inerrant forethought. What is coming to pass has been thought out by the all-wise plan of God. Now then, seeing as this is the approach the Calvinist takes to the order of salvation, that God decreed to create decreed to permit men to fall while he could have prevented, then out of a fallen race, decreed that rather than all perishing he would save some, that he then sent his Son to save those individuals, and the Son sends forth the Holy Spirit to regenerate them, then we are now ready to apply that system of salvation to the salvation of an infant or a baby. How does this apply to an infant? First, we state that all mankind, including infants, sinned in Adam. Now, if you do not agree with that, then you have left us right quickly, and you'll have to go back and find your hope for infant salvation in one of these other theories that we have presented. All infants, all mankind, including infants, sinned in Adam, fell with him in the first transgression. Now, as to how the unborn race participated in Adam's sin and fall, there are two groups within the Calvinistic camp who have different views of imputation of sin. I will only mention them. I will not have time to deal with them. The one group as to how Adam's sin was imputed to his children is known as the federal headship or the representative principle. And the other view of Calvinists go under what is known as the realistic or vital union principle. But in one mode or another, they are agreed that Adam and his unborn posterity, that means you and me, were so connected that he and we went down together in his sin. We were not separated. When Adam sinned, we sinned, for we were in Adam as the acorn is in the tree. And whatever the tree's nature is like, the acorn shall come forth with a nature which is identical with that of the tree. Does that make sense? Okay. Then the Calvinistic viewpoint is that all the descendants of Adam come into this world guilty of sin and with an absence of righteousness and innocence. Therefore, they are guilty. This system strenuously asserts the universality of original sin and views every member of the human race, Jesus Christ only accepted, as under a forfeiture of innocence and righteousness. And this is why it was necessary for Jesus to be virgin-born. Why? In order to escape the implications of inheriting original sin. Now, if an innocent, if an infant is born innocent, 
then there was no need for Jesus to be virgin-born. Now, that's the logic which we are dealing with tonight. So, if you deny original sin, then you ultimately then come right back and say there was no need for the virgin birth of Christ. So, if we are then ready to confess original sin, then we are in for some conclusions which we must draw from original sin. So that the child is born with two attributes. He is born with a heart which is guilty before God, and he is born with a heart which is depraved and sinful. The one aspect of the infant is that his guilt exposes him to penalty, the judgment of God, and the other aspect, his depraved nature, predestinates him to a history of actual sinning when he reaches that age wherein he can consciously manifest that sinning. That's why that every parent who has a child can know ahead of time that child is predestinated to a life of sinning. You ever have a child grow up that didn't sin? Why not? Because that child comes into this world with a nature which is sinful. It comes out of the womb speaking lies, according to David, and it will manifest its sinning. Its nature predetermines what its action shall be out there. Now, because of this connection between Adam and his posterity, whether it's federal or real, Every child is born at once guilty and depraved, therefore condemned, and therefore by the decree of nature destined to an eternal death. The moral status of every child of Adam is that of a guilty, depraved, condemned thing exposed to eternal doom. That is the decree of nature. And hence, Calvinists teach that all men, make this clear, adults and infants are included in this decree of nature. And that if something does not happen to change that decree and counteract it, every child shall grow up into a place where it shall manifest its sinfulness and sin, when it is conceived, will bring forth death. Now, I'm quiet here. That's a pretty bleak picture for a baby coming into this world. A nature which is going to predestinate that it's going to be a sinner. And God condemns all sinners. My next two words are the glory of the Calvinistic approach. But God. But God. If God had not entered the picture at this point, so to speak, all would have been assigned to the same destiny as the race of angels which fell. But that precious something does happen. God sets a predestinating decree of grace against the decree of nature. 
And so that child's nature, which was exposed to condemnation and was destined to an actual condemnation at the end of its life, at the judgment day, God, by a superior and irresistible power, places a decree in its path and says that it's salvation. God takes that child's destiny, and that child's destiny is predestined to hell. And God counteracts that, and in his own purposes says there shall be a decree of grace, but God. But God, if any adult or infant is rescued from the doom of nature, bearing down all to hell, then God must decree. He must overmatch and set aside the decree of nature. There is no denying that every child is born with a nature which is handicapped by depravity with a lust of heart which, when it conceives in adulthood, brings forth sin. A sin, when it is finished and completed, brings forth death. We cannot deny that. That is the Bible. Now then, for a moment, in your imagination, put God out of the picture. Put him out of the picture, out of the case. Now, what can we do with the race of Adam, born condemned, that when the judgment comes out there, every one of them will be exposed to condemnation, an actual condemnation. Leave God out of the picture, and what's going to happen to the race? It's a bleak, bleak picture. What child can unclasp the hand of death that's got its throat and break itself free of nature's decree. What child without supernatural intervention can turn the course of its own sinful nature into an opposite direction? What young lion can convert itself into a lamb? What young leopard can change his spotted hide? What young Ethiopian can change his black skin into the pink skin of a Caucasian? What young thorn bush can change its nature into an apple tree? What young sinner can change its heart into that of a being which shall grow up into a sinless adult? Hmm? It's a bleak, bleak picture. Do you see why, my hearers, God wasn't playing daisies when he told Adam, in the day you eat thereof, you're going to die? He meant what he said. And Adam's posterity sinned in Adam. And if you'd have been there, you'd have done the same thing. You say, how do you know that? Because I see you doing it today. Hmm? I see me doing it today. I see I have in me a nature which shakes its fist in the face of God and say, who are you to tell me to stay away from that tree which I want to eat of? I want to decree what's right and wrong. I want to decree what I want to do and 
what I don't want to do. Don't you tell me what to do and not do. I see it in all of you. I see it in every member of Adam's race. It's the same thing which Adam did. So we can't say, well, if I had been there, things had been different. You have been there. You're here tonight. And we're all in the same boat. The world has not witnessed, after thousands of years of social experimentation and effort, one single illustration of a human being able to live a sinless life. Now, no one shall enter into the new heaven and new earth without a sinless life. So on and on, the decree of nature, without any mercy, decrees in its execution, death is coming, death is coming, death is coming. God must counter-decree, or the entire race is doomed. Hell is the logical and the judicial final of us all. If nature's goings are not interfered with, we shall all perish. Bless God, I'm glad he interfered with this fellow's nature. I'm not going to claim, you can't touch me unless I give you my consent. I'm glad he touched my nature. I'm glad he spoke change to this sinful nature and changed its course to where it has a love toward God rather than an enmity against God. But God, if he had not done this, after then, viewing man as fallen in Adam, the race of Adam, adult and infant, has now all experienced the justice of God. It is in that bleak situation that the Calvinist, with a shout of joy, a shout of triumph, flies to the divine predestinating decree of grace and says, but God, but God. He rejoices that there's going to be a portion of Adam's race that is going to be saved, not assigned to the whole total destruction like the angels. But God decreed out of a created, fallen, damnable race, he was going to save some sinners out of that race. This is the joy of our faith, if you please. Once we have been brought to see that none of us deserve anything but justice. It is at that point the counter-decree comes. I shall take people who are on their way to hell already, and I shall predestinate that some shall be saved by the hand of a Redeemer. If the tide of human nature were allowed to run on, then the whole sea of humanity would wind up upon the shores of destruction in hell. But God says there's going to be a sea its waves are going to roll in upon heaven's shores. And that sea is going to consist of a multitude of humanity out of every kindred tribe and tongue, black people, white people, yellow people, old people, young people, sick people, healthy people. Out of all of Adam's race, there's going to be a first fruits that's going to wash in on the shores of heaven. And the cause of it 
will be because I decreed to blow the wind the other way. And if I hadn't have done so, all would have wound up on the shores of hell and destruction. How strange then, in our thinking, that we as human beings should become so angry and get in a frenzy at God just when the word predestination is mentioned. It is our hope. It's not something we ought to get mad about. It's something we ought to praise God for. If he had not predestinated, none would have been saved. Why get angry with God for saving some when all were going to perish? And if you have reason to be one of those whom God has touched your heart tonight, and you love the Lord Jesus Christ, then, my friend, you ought to see that the very roots of your salvation are found in the predestinating decree of God's grace set against your decree of nature. There's your hope. You go back and trace out your family tree. Any of you ever doing that? Hmm? Go back a long ways. When I first came to Christ, I felt, well, I repented and believed. That's where my family tree of salvation began. Well, bless God, that's when I first knew I was in the tree. (laughs) That's when I first knew I was in the tree. But repentance and faith are rooted in the decree of grace. They're gifts of God that God gives unto his people through the divine quickening of the ministry of the Holy Spirit. What sanity, then, is there in creatures protesting against a divine decree of God to predestinate some to life when all deserve to be let alone and go to hell. What sanity is there in that? What sanity is there? Could a man who was a captain of a, sea, of a ship, who had run upon the rocks and tore the whole bottom of his ship out, and his destiny was the bottom of the sea, what sanity would be in him if he objected to some other ship coming along, attaching itself on his ship, and pulling to the shore of safety? Hmm? What sanity would there be in a captain like that? If you're saved tonight, that's what God did to you. Your destiny was the bottom of the ocean of hell by nature. But the captain of your salvation, the Lord Jesus Christ, came by your road, your house one day, as he did with Zacchaeus, and he attached himself to you in election and redemption and regeneration, and he said, I'm going to pull you in to the shore of heaven. Now, why would you object and fight against that? Hmm? If he'd left you alone, you had no other destiny but by your birth was hell. Why get all mad and angry at the precious biblical doctrine of predestination? It is not that God created some men and then predestined them to sin. It is that God created all men, permitted them to sin in Adam, and out of that fallen race predestinated some to be saved. Now, why do we find fault with God for that? Hmm? How foolish we would be. Now, Dr. T.O. Summers, an Arminian professor 
of theology at Vanderbilt University, an Arminian, saw this reasoning, and he said this. Listen carefully. Arminianism clearly perceives that to admit that mankind, or Methodism clearly perceives that to admit that mankind are actually born into the world justly under condemnation is to grant the foundation of the whole Calvinistic scheme. If we grant natural desert of damnation, there can be no valid objection to the sovereign election of a few out of a reprobate mass, or to limited atonement, irresistible grace, and final perseverance to secure the present and eternal salvation of the sovereignly predestinated number. These are people that lived back in those days who knew what their religion was about. And he is simply acknowledging clearly that Methodism... The Arminian system clearly recognizes that if you acknowledge original sin, you've granted the whole ball of wax to the Calvinistic theory. That if all men are born condemned, there can be no valid objection by any man against God's saving son. That didn't come from someone on my side of the fence, that came from the other side of the fence. Would to God that God would grant a spirit of wisdom in our midst today, in this religious world, to see what the systems of religion are all about. Instead of all of this stirring up the beans, and you have all kinds of systems within one body of people not really understanding what they're believing. Somebody making a system attributing salvation to God in one statement, and then in that same sermon in the next sentence, while you have the man attributing salvation to man. That's what we're dealing with today. It's a wonder anybody could get saved. (laughs) It's a wonder anybody could get saved in this system today of confusion. But bless God, he saves his people right in the midst of all of the confusion. Then according to this Methodist theologian, then all that we have to do as a Calvinist, To prove our case is to prove that all men, adults and infants, are born under condemnation of original sin. If we can prove that from the Bible, then there can be, quote, no valid objection to predestination, unquote, by this man. But the case is far stronger. If we admit original sin and natural condemnation as an infant then, beloved, predestination must be invoked in order to counteract the course of human nature and to change its destiny and to save the sinner. It is essential if we acknowledge original sin so that the Calvinist believes that Adam fell, all mankind fell in him and with him, and that the reign of sin is unto death for him, so that all who are partakers in Adam that God opposed that decree of death with a decree of life for some. Now, consequently, then, the Calvinist follows the fall which destinated the whole race unto death with a divine decree which ordained some unto life. The situation being as desperate and described, the whole race being by nature helpless and deformed, Who then can legitimately object against the Almighty God for predestinating some to be saved out of a fallen race 
of condemned people. But here's the real point. Here's the real point which people have problems with. It's not that God predestinated in those sinful circumstances, but the objection is that he predestinated some and not all. That's the problem. That his decree was not wide enough to include the entire human family. But let us get the case clearly. All were guilty, all were depraved, all were condemned, all were doomed, then God predestinated. If any are saved, then he must determine to do so. Then he is left with two options. He can either save all men, or he can save some. Hmm? Does God have a free will? Doesn't he have an option to do with sinners as he sees best? He did it with the angels. But now then, the thing that is formed shall say to the thing that formed it, Why have you made me sinful? (laughs) If you hadn't created me and given me that woman, I wouldn't have sinned. Did God allow Adam to get by with that? No, he said, you sinned, you sinned, and you're going to reap the consequences of it. And at that final day of judgment, every man that is condemned out of Adam's race will ascribe justice to God. They'll get what they deserve. Shall not the judge of the earth do what? Shall he not do right? He'll do right with all men. The cause of anybody going to hell is their sin. The cause of anybody going to heaven is God's grace. Any problem with that? Hmm? Anybody ready to get mad about that? If you go to hell, it's your fault. If you go to heaven, it's God's fault. You got it? Nebuchadnezzar built a mighty city called Babylon. He said, look what I've built with my hand. There'll be no person in heaven looking at his mansion and saying, look what I've built with my works. Look what I've built with my free will and ability. That was prepared for them before the foundation of the world to inherit in their representative, the Lord Jesus Christ, so that we bow before him. I do not understand why God did not elect to save all. I don't understand that. The scripture does not speak to that issue. But heaven does prove that he saved a multitude which no man can number. Will we agree on that? 